The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Uh, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Gabe Keller and I'm covering for Mark who's teaching a retreat in Massachusetts. Um, I've been coming to Common Ground for six years. Um, I recently did an eight-month retreat Just two months ago, I've been back, and so the talk is some reflections coming out of that time. I spent those eight months out where Mark is teaching at Insight Meditation Society. The title of the talk is, Everything is Workable, the Transformative Power of Mindfulness. And that phrase, everything is workable, Joseph Goldstein who many of you might know, probably know, one of Mark's teachers, um, one of the founders of the whole insight meditation movement. So he said that a few times on the retreat, everything is workable. And it just came up spontaneously for me as I was thinking about giving a talk about uh, what I'd learned. And instead of sort of presenting an insight in particular, it seemed like what I really could see directly was not just a one-time benefit, but an ongoing benefit was just this this more, more of a confidence that everything is workable and more skill in being able to work with the challenges that inevitably come up in life. Um, you could say it's practical skills that really the Buddha was a pragmatist addressing the most relevant question that all human beings have, how to be happy. Apparently the word for dukkha, the word for usually translated as suffering in Pali, which is the language that the Buddha's teachings were recorded in, has a literal meaning of a wheel that's out of true Um, So you can imagine if a wheel is not completely circular that there will be bumps along the road. So similarly, that's dukkha, our experience of unsatisfactoriness. There's just something that makes life not completely satisfying, if not hell at times. So we all know that, and so that analogy of the wheel being out of true points to the Buddha's main teaching, which is that what's out of line is our understanding, not anything external, although there are difficulties externally or even internally in terms of emotions, the whole range of emotions that all us human beings have, not all of which are pleasant, but that ultimately our liberation doesn't lie in controlling or fixing anything, but in clarifying our view, our understanding of what this is, mind-body process. So through paying attention with mindfulness, we begin to clarify that view And that's how mindfulness meditation transforms our life. It's just through this simple, and one uh, teacher, Sayadaw Tejaniya, talks about collecting data, that uh, the more data we collect, then the more um, accurate our understanding is. And it's the same with mindfulness meditation. The more we pay attention in a particular way. That's the important part. But then with that information, things start to go more smoothly for us, not even because anything we might be able to express, although a lot of it we can, but it's not an understanding that is conceptual. It's a direct scene when we directly see what causes suffering and what causes the release of suffering in our own experience, the mind remembers that 
and then can re re remember that in other moments. But it's that uh, particular way of observing that we train in, because obviously we're observing all day long. But mindfulness is a particular way of observing, and in the sit tonight when I mentioned checking the attitude, that's a big part of it. Um, mindfulness, the, the only way to see clearly is if the mind is free of greed and aversion. Otherwise, the mind always has a spin and is looking to get something or to push something away. So it's been so many times in my practice where I've seen that there was an aversion or greed there that I wasn't aware of and then just relaxing with the way it is and that aversion dropping away, then it's a lot easier to see what's going on. And it's really a relief that this process happens on by itself in a way that we don't have to solve our problems or figure out the meaning of life. We can do those things, but that's not what the Buddha's teaching is the way to liberation. Just through being aware, the mind naturally learns and uh, develops wisdom and that grows. So... It's an impersonal process, in a way, the development of our practice, um, which is really reassuring to me that we put in the causes. We, we have some understanding. We hear the teachings, and then we put in... We definitely do have to think about it, reflect on the teachings, um, but it's an organic process. But it's, as we all know, it's not easy to be mindful just to have that simple, bare attention of what's happening. And so a lot of care, patience is needed, and a a sense of humor as well. Joseph Goldstein um, writes this about that, about humor. If you don't have a sense of humor now, meditate for a while, and it will come. Because it's difficult to watch the mind steadily and systematically without learning to smile. Someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master, whether he ever went to the movies. No, he replied, I give meditation interviews. So, Another quote about humor from Oscar Wilde's, He said, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. (laughs) So it's always helpful to remember to take it all more lightly. And and it seems like, I think on my last interview on my long retreat, I said that a few times to my teacher, just to take it lightly. That's what I've learned. And, and And that goes back to that whole part of our practice of the attitude which just uh, seems to be so important um, that it, it's, it's usually, at least for me, it was always like, oh yeah, I'm judging myself. I don't need to do that. Or, oh yeah, there is this unpleasant emotion, but I hadn't noticed there was also this condemnation of it or this very strong belief that it's there. That, or not that it's there, that it shouldn't be there. So, but we can't go straight to that because we've all heard that uh, suffering, that clinging is the cause of suffering. So we all know that on one level, but that's why we need to practice because it's the more intuitive, direct level that actually frees the heart. Another quote related to that, again from Suzuki Roshi, he said, All of you are perfect just as you are, and you could use a little improvement. So this is an ongoing um, discovery challenge for me is, is this whole area of um, self-judgment that so many of us 
have that conditioning in our society and in all societies probably. And to just see how, to actually see it is different than to be caught by it. When we actually see it, then we see that it's unnecessary, that it just hurts. And so all these qualities of patience, of kindness, are really helpful as we as we do this work. Um, that we can't just go to that, like I was saying, we can't just um, say yes, clinging is the cause of suffering, so I'm not going to cling anymore. So that's why all these other qualities are needed, because it's an actual scene. We have to see where we are clinging in order to, for the mind, not us actually, the mind wisdom on its own lets go when it sees how absurd it is. So on one hand, it's a relief that we don't have to do it. We just have to put in the causes, which are to be mindful, to be non-judgmentally aware of whatever's arising. And um, on the other hand, we might wish we could just do it, and that's why we need those qualities to persevere. So mindfulness itself isn't a personal quality, which we can become aware of sometimes more easily in uh, more open styles of practice where we're not directing the attention, but even now if we just stop making any effort to be aware, we might notice that awareness is still here. So it's an inherent part of the mind. We don't create mindfulness or awareness. We simply recognize it, remember it, and notice what else is present, if greed is present, if aversion is present. And simply through being aware, this is the really amazing thing, is that the mind has its own wisdom. So simply through being aware in that, in this mindful awareness way, the mind lets go of greed, lets go of aversion. Sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it's just in the moment of seeing that the mind can let go. But it's just through awareness. It's not through necessarily trying to figure anything out. But simply, it's like giving everything the space it needs to move. That's seems a lot of time it comes back to that, you know, if I've had some agitation in my mind and then for some reason while meditating, um, it's just like there's that space of safety that's necessary for what was unprocessed to just reveal itself and then in that space things can start to move. It's when we're constricted, holding on to something, not letting something move, resisting something that things don't move. And so uh, during one interview, I told my teacher it had occurred to me that the path wasn't actually about me, me becoming a fearless version of myself, for example, that I'd noticed that in moments of mindfulness, and we probably all have experienced this in moments of peace, it wasn't actually about me. It wasn't actually part of the story of me uh, having achieved something. It was actually just the simplicity of the mind connecting with whatever it was, the breath or, or whatever, and the absence of self-obsessing that made that moment so liberating. So our practice can become less personal when we have more moments like that, less about becoming something and more about just being however it is. One reflection I had on retreat and after retreat was that I hadn't solved any of my problems. So it's it's great because <laughs> if I hadn't if I can't solve my problems after 8 months of silent meditation then maybe that's not the answer. Not that I was always trying to solve my problems that whole time, but I think on, on some level, uh, 
Mark also has said this to me. We have to sort of burn out because we have to burn out our deeply ingrained assumption that the way to happiness is by controlling things. So on one level, we're probably all going to need to to see how that doesn't work. And we are seeing that, but we need to keep seeing it, and we need to see what does work, letting go. One quote sort of about this, about how we need to fail, how we're going to fail in this practice over and over again, from again from Suzuki Roshi. Um, someone was on a retreat with him and wanted to leave, saying that every time he sat to meditate, he started to cry. I can't take it, he said. I'm leaving. I can't be here anymore. Suzuki didn't tell him to stay. He merely said, you try and you try and you fail and then you go deeper. I also have reflected that on my retreat, I did the best I could, but I wouldn't say that, you know, if you want to speak about it in this way that I did great or, you know, that I was really impressed by by my meditation skills. So, but even with that, that quote really rings true that, you know, we have our intention to be free, to be more loving, wise human beings, and that's where we can really place our trust and then in our growing wisdom and our efforts. And somehow... It works. <laughs> Another teacher, Steve Armstrong, compared our practice to um, like a rocket in space. And apparently a rocket, when it's going towards its destinations, 95% of the time it's off course, but somehow it makes it there. And, and that's, I think, our development of our practice because so much of it is purifying our intention or purifying those forces of greed and aversion in our practice itself so that when we're sitting down to practice, um, a lot of the time we bring along our habits of how we, of controlling. So we try to control the breath instead of just feeling it. And um, so that gets purified just through seeing how painful it is over and over. Another quote sort of about how we have to burn out some of these habits. This is from Leonard Cohen, who apparently spent time in a Zen monastery. Leonard Cohen, the singer-songwriter. He wrote, What happens in meditations that last 10-15 hours is that you run through your top 10 erotic fantasies, ambition fantasies, revenge fantasies, global ratification fantasies. You run through them all until you bore yourself to death, basically. <laughs> and the faculty that produces opinions and snap judgments and unrealistic scenarios for your own prominence, after you run through them for a number of years, they cease to have charge. They bore themselves into non-existence. You see them as diversions from another kind of intimacy that you become more interested in. And that is what Socrates said, know thyself. So the mind naturally wises up in its own time as we simply keep going. We don't have to try to fix ourselves, which is what makes meditation not just uh, a means to an end, but uh, there can be real moments of liberation just in sitting down and not trying to fix ourselves, but just opening to the way it is. So I want to speak a bit more practically about... um, working with difficult emotions. That was one of the hardest part, and I think for a lot of us, can be one of the most challenging parts of practice and life. And so one understanding I developed was the importance of having a lot of options and just um, how we develop skill in working with uh, these difficult emotions. And um, I think before this long retreat, my main practice was more of an open practice, but it, that would all 
often involve simply getting lost in thought and reactivity uh, and spinning uh, with that, which wasn't very helpful. And so I appreciate more now the importance of redirecting the mind as a as a tool when because the mind isn't always stable the mind uh, when the mind is out of balance and we know that what the mind's doing isn't helpful then it can be really useful to have skill in redirecting the attention say to the breath or to the body until the mind has more stability more peace of mind and then we can investigate again. What is the emotion? How does it feel in the body? What is an emotion? What is this that I'm calling fear, that I'm calling anger? It's unpleasant. Can I be with that? Is that can that be okay? But to really respect that, we're not always going to have the stability of mind. And so it's like a gardener. We know... Um, when the mind is a bit out of balance, we can. there are things we can do. We don't simply have to give up. There are things we can do to stabilize the mind. But ultimately, we want to start to open to these unwanted places in ourself, these emotions that are painful. There's a poem that speaks to this by Izumi Shikibu, who is a Zen nun, I believe, from the uh, 10th century. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. It's a really deep conditioning that we have that unpleasant means bad, and particularly with emotions, that unpleasant emotions are wrong, but they're unpleasant, and then we look at our reaction to them. Are we condemning them? Are we denying them? And all this obviously has to be done with the attitude of loving kindness, of metta, wanting to find peace and happiness, but looking at... um, but being willing to bring that love to what's unpleasant. And that's really the, the way that I've found that's most, that works the best with difficult emotions is, is in the end uh, being able to befriend them, to feel them without needing to push them away even if it's really unpleasant, but the mind can still be at ease, be at peace. It's like holding a child or a baby that's crying. So there is unpleasantness, but there's also that care. And this is something that just, at least in my experience, just develops over time like everything else. Just being able, and we can start in a very small way once the mind is feeling safe enough, which is why it's important to develop some measure of stability. But then when the mind's feeling safe enough to take that risk of, okay, I'm just going to feel a little bit of what this feels like, and then moving on from there. But it's very healing to begin to open to what we have not allowed herself to open to. And um, for me in particular, fear was a big emotion that I worked with on my retreat. And, and to see that transformation that from the beginning, maybe I'd never in my life really just felt that emotion in its most direct way, um, but had always been resisting it. And to go from there to at least to just a few moments where I could really see, oh yeah, there's fear and it's it feels really unpleasant in the body, in the mind. Sometimes I felt it a lot in my chest and sometimes I remember one day just feeling that churning, but the mind 
was at peace with it. And it's so healing to be able to to do that. And and then we go back. We like uh, for me go back to resisting it, but there's more faith that the way that the that resistance isn't really a long term option and to have a lot of care and compassion with our human lives that for all of us involve the difficult and the pleasant. Ajahn Suchito, a monk, uh, English monk, said that if you're feeling an emotion that has a name, that means other people have felt that. So that can also be really helpful. You know, this isn't fear; isn't my personal problem. Everyone feels fear and has and works with it. A quote, uh, probably my favorite poem of all time that many of you probably know, that also speaks to this possibility of befriending ourselves. It's Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your despair, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So compassion is a very helpful tool in working with difficult emotions. Rebecca Bradshaw, one of my favorite teachers that I met on this retreat, said, when mindfulness doesn't cut it, try compassion. And... uh, She suggested that to me on the retreat, and I remember a day when there was some difficult emotion. I don't think I really knew exactly what it was, just sort of mental pain. And my mind was sort of scheming what to do. You know, after my yogi job, I'll go and take a walk, and maybe that'll help. But I I wasn't really noticing the aversion that was behind it all. You know, all of that was to because I didn't like it and I wanted it to go away. And I remember that instruction, just, well, what if I just... I think what she said to me was, well, why don't you try just caring about it? So I tried just caring about it, not trying to solve it or do anything about it. And there was just a shift that, oh, I didn't have to do anything about it. She also says that compassion takes the edge off. So there's still unpleasantness, um, but the edge is taken off when we care about our suffering or the suffering of somebody else. That's why compassion is actually a beautiful state, a pleasant state, even though it's meeting suffering. When we're really caring and connecting with our suffering or that of somebody else's, there's aliveness because we're not dead to it. We're not pushing it away. Rumi said, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. So it's so many times on my retreat I would uh, kind of remember that shift that it's not about getting rid of anything but compassion and being baked into a well-baked loaf through compassion, through being willing to meet in whatever degree we can, little by little, opening ourselves to the full range of life. And Rebecca has so many wonderful talks on compassion, on this subject, um, She also said, when we open to the fullness of life, we don't just get the suffering, we also get the beauty. So it's 
it's that process of being willing to open to everything that allows us to open also to all the beauty in life. Um, she also um, quoted Eddie Hillisum, who wrote diaries. She was a young woman uh, during World War II, and she has a book. A book was published of her diaries called An Interrupted Life. She says, Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that it, that it is due. For if everyone bears his grief honestly and courageously, the sorrow that now fills the world will abate. And again, I think one thing I really t- took back from this retreat is that this process is an organic process um, that we can't, and it, like I was saying, it's a relief, but we don't have to know how it's all going to unfold, but we can trust our goodness, that we can see we do want to be happy, loving human beings, and um, and that the practice does work. If we can probably, all of us in this room, vouch for that, that if we look back, however long we've been practicing, that things just seem to work better now. We might not even know exactly how. So I want to speak now a little bit about how mindfulness in itself, in a moment of mindfulness, is the practice of liberation, so that it's not like we have to practice, you have to go on an eight-month retreat and then you will have a glimmer of, of freedom, but we all experience moments of freedom. And there's a lot of places in the texts where this is pointed to as momentary nibbana, which is just a moment where the mind isn't caught, confused by greed, aversion, or delusion. And I think I included this in my talk because um, when people asked what I learned on retreat, I would often point to learning about uh, fear in particular and having more freedom with that over time. But then I felt, well, I'm leaving out just all those simple moments of freedom, of peace that I experienced, that we all experience in our practice. And that's helpful to to remember that the way we practice, we the way we learn how to be free is through practicing being free right now, not in any other moment. And these moments of freedom inspire us. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep going if we had, didn't have moments of peace. And some people have more moments of peace than others, I think. You know, pe- different personality types, people who are more skillful at quieting the mind. I'm not one of those. <laughs> and and others who for whom it's maybe more difficult. But we all experience um, these moments of freedom. And it's also helpful to sort of demystify these moments of freedom and to make it really practical in sort of a day-to-day application, uh, John Buddhadasa, who is a Thai forest master of the last century, wrote a tract called Nibbana for Everyone, in which he says that greed, anger, and delusion, which are the three unwholesome roots, uh, they're so painful that no one, no mind could constantly be experiencing them. They would go mad or die. So we all experience these moments of Nibbana, momentary Nibbana, every day. Um, And I think in that text, he also talks about our practice being more, or we can shift our practice from trying to create peace to just noticing peace, how peace is there. Every time the mind puts down some obsession, there's a moment of liberation. But we usually pick up another one right away, so we don't notice those moments. But 
liberation or a moment of Nibbana is simply a moment when the mind isn't creating suffering. So that's why it can also be useful to get more familiar with peace by practicing in a more directed way where we're just with the breath and everything else falls away and we taste that peace, which is also that same peace of liberation of the mind not creating suffering. We can also experience this moment of peace simply in, in daily in daily life. We've probably all had moments just doing our thing, driving, or just when the mind is being aware, it's knowing what's going on, it's engaged, but it's not clinging. It's not creating a self-story. It's just with the way it is. And then those moments we can get more of a sense of how this freedom in the practice is from the mind not clinging. It's not from anything external. It's from the wisdom in the mind, the wisdom that understands clinging hurts. I don't have to do that. A quote about this state of mind from Upasika Ki Nanayon, who is a Thai laywoman, an inward stain, unentangled knowing, all outward going knowing cast aside. And from the Buddha, from Majjhima Nikaya 62, he's speaking to his son, Rahula. Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. The mind that's not clinging isn't established anywhere. It's still present. Awareness, we can't get rid of awareness. We don't actually have to get rid of anything. But we can start to notice the attitude in the mind or when clinging is present and when it's not. Here's another uh, quote from the suttas from an exchange between someone named Kappa and the Buddha. This is from the Sutta Nipata. So Kappa says, For one stranded in the middle of the lake, in the flood of great danger, birth, overwhelmed with aging and death, tell me the island, dear sir, and show me the island, so that this may not happen again. The Buddha says, For one stranded in the middle of the lake, in the flood of great danger, birth, overwhelmed with aging and death, I will tell you the island, Kappa. Having nothing, clinging to nothing, that is the island. There is no other. That's Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. Those knowing this, mindful, fully unbound in the here and now, don't serve as Mara's servants, don't come under Mara's sway. Mara is the personification of greed, anger, and delusion. So the Buddha is pointing to something very direct and uh, in one of the, I'm not sure where it's from, but the Dhamma, the way it is, is has these different titles. And one of them is the inviting, the apparent here and now. So whenever I have a moment of mindfulness, a moment of mindfulness and wisdom, there's always that flavor of discovery of, oh, it was here, it is here and now, just like the Buddha said. So it always has to be process of discovery. We can't have had a moment of mindfulness and then think we're done because it's an ongoing reflection, ongoing investigation. So I'll just end and then open it up for our discussion with another poem by Mary Oliver called Snow Geese. Oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anything or anyone. 
yet it is ours, and not by the century or the year, but by the hours. One fall day I heard above me, and above the sting of the wind, a sound I did not know, and my look shot upward. It was a flock of snow geese, winging it faster than the ones we usually see, and being the color of snow, catching the sun, so they were in part at least golden. I held my breath, as we do sometimes, to stop time when something wonderful has touched us, as with a match, which is lit and bright but does not hurt in the common way, but delightfully, as if delight were the most serious thing you ever felt. The geese flew on. I have never seen them again. Maybe I will, some day, somewhere. Maybe I won't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when I saw them, I saw them as through the veil, secretly, joyfully, clearly. So, a moment of mindfulness is like seeing through the veil and touching life in the most direct way. And it's our practice, but it's also the fruit of our practice. So it'd be great to hear from people about their practice, anything that came to mind, or any questions. So what comes to mind? I've learned a lot just in the like in the transition now of coming back from being on a long retreat. Um, how we can see how our minds can be really beautiful and full of love and peace and know that for certain. And then also we need to have the humility to see that our minds also can be really caught up. But just, I think it depersonalizes it when we see that we're not just one thing, but we're always changing and going on that spectrum. So it's always about what's needed now, what's the mind need now to be more balanced any other thoughts? Say your name, please. Yeah, it's um, messy. It's messier out here in a lot of ways, but I think that's when I was thinking about this talk and everything is workable came to mind because things just seem more workable now. And it's not even that I know that I can that I know something that I can say. Um, I think we just gain more faith in ourselves and in our own goodness. The more we do this practice, the more we see the results. Um, And so even though I get caught up a lot in fear and reactivity, you just keep going and and yeah <laughs> um i think i i don't know if i if i'll have the chance to do it again um i have a girlfriend so that was hard for her to be away that long um but yeah i think you know i i I want to do, one thing I have thought about is doing the three months again. I did the three months and then I did five months at the Forest Refuge, which is for individual self-retreats. And um, yeah, I mean, I would, I think I I learned so much that I think everyone should do it. (laughs) And I would do it if it felt right in my life. But for now, I feel like I have a lot of practice to do out in the world and integrating what I learned into how I live. So I think retreat and daily life really have to go together so that it's what you learned is really in being embodied. Yeah, thanks. So pretty much it was uh, I didn't write or talk for the first three months and then, uh, other than with my teacher and in discussions, and then I had three days off 
in which I saw my girlfriend. Um, and then I went back for the next five months. Yep, except for discussions and, yep, yep. So that was difficult. But one thing I, I sort of learned in, in terms of that was sort of the how much attachment I had to trying to please people or, you know, being responsible. But but in that, you know, total, my they, they had given me that, you know, my loved ones had given me that permission to to do that. So I felt free to just be with myself. And then I got to see, you know, the guilt, you know, the wanting to, to be there for them. And I think I learned some freedom from, you know, in our close relationships, there's love and there's also a lot of uh, attachment. And for me, just, I feel like there's just some healthy um, learning that, you know, of my own separateness in a way that I can care for for my loved ones, but I don't have to, but I'm not responsible for them and I can't control them. So, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, 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 that's a great question. Uh, the question, if not everyone could hear, it was about working with difficult emotions and how do you do that. And the first instruction I got, I think my first interview when I was reporting fear for no real reason, and the teacher was Guy Armstrong, who has worked a lot with fear as his main difficult emotion. And, um, and his first instruction was, uh, to be with it in the body, and so that was the first thing I did. That's you know the first instruction. So I remember one time before going in to see the interview, and often interviews would bring up anxiety. So it was a great time to feel that. And so one time before the interview, it was just so clear that emotion, and and then with just feeling it in the body, it was just, it could be really interesting. Like what is those sensations? And for me, a lot of it was right here in that the heart center, um, which apparently is the seat of a lot of emotions. But just to feel that churning and the heat and then to feel how it would change. Um, and I reported, you know, I could have felt that, you know, I felt like forever. It was a great object of meditation because it was so strong and clear. It was unpleasant, but if I could just not hate it and just be with it, I learned a lot just from that. And it was a really helpful instruction to not get lost in thinking about it, but to just have that really solid thing, not even thing, but process. Um, and, And just from going on with that, seeing how much the body and the mind reflect each other, that with fear, you know, we're feeling things here and we're resisting it. And I could always, I, I use the body a lot as my main anchor, just the body sitting, and I could notice if I was feeling fear, you know, and if I was resisting it, there was always a correlation in the body, some tightness. So that's always a great um, thing is what's our relationship to it? And that's usually reflected, is the body completely at ease with what's happening in this mind-body process. So for me, a lot of it was just exploring my relationship to that emotion and seeing our, our conditioned relationship to unpleasant emotions, to unpleasant anything, is aversion, is resistance. So I had to get to know what that was like. Um, but then just to be able to see for myself, um, what fear is like with resistance and what fear is like without resistance was really liberating. So we can explore it in the body and the mind, you know, and I think we, we all have to kind of get to know what clinging feels like, what resistance feels like, so we can know it for ourselves. 
Um, and and it's if we didn't have a barometer for that, we couldn't really practice. But we all know when the mind is feeling at ease and when the mind's feeling constricted. So that can be our barometer. If the mind is constricted, maybe it's because there's resistance and Yeah, I hope that made some sense. We have time for a few more. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. And I <clears throat> that's why I think it's really important that our understanding of the practice and of the freedom, like these moments of freedom, goes with us in our daily life so that we're really practicing all day long because we can have moments of freedom, moments of peace in our daily life. It's just a matter of developing momentum. And... um, and if we understand these moments simply as moments where the mind isn't creating suffering, then we can get interested. You know, we're all going to drive home tonight. Do we need to create suffering to drive home? And it's not about judging or thinking that we should, but we can get interested in, in our minds. That's really the heart of the practice. Um, and it's interesting what you said um, about how we do have moments where we we can just open to an emotion, a difficult emotion, and just be with it. Um, and it's also interesting for me that even having had moments like that, and we've all had moments like that, we also we it doesn't mean we're immune to still getting caught in them. So to just have a lot of compassion and, and respect for the process that um, the mind is learning how to be with it, but when the mind doesn't feel safe, it reverts back to what it to its old forms of protection. But that doesn't mean that those moments of freedom weren't real, or those that wisdom wasn't real. That there is wisdom. It's like wisdom and delusion. They all have. They both have their momentum. So we are just watering the seeds of wisdom, and every moment of mindfulness is a watering of that seed. And that's all we have to do. So it's very hopeful. So I think we'll leave it there. Thanks, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.